Oh, hi, y'all. It's Wednesday, which is also Mueller Day, and we have a great show for you. We'll be covering the hearings, and then I'm sitting down with actor Kofi Sirabo. And then I'm doing fire tweets with David Spade. So you stay right there, and we will see you on the timeline. We need more coffee, though. Way more coffee. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Well, Hi. have you been here since uh, 6 p.m.? <laughs> getting ready for today's show? I sure the hell have not been here since 6 a.m. <laughs> or 6 p.m. I have been here since 6 a.m., but I do know a gaggle of young people who have been waiting for something very special since 6 p.m. yesterday. Huh. Here's a treat from Rachel Bade. These interns have been here since 6 p.m. last night waiting for the Mueller hearing. They slept on the cold marble floor, ordered pizza, and reread the Mueller report. Oh, and there the they youth are. Of the America. Youth. The youth. So brilliant. So obviously the Mueller hearing is happening right now, and we're gonna be taking you into some live coverage. But I just had to shout out these young people because you know where I would not have been? There <laughs> on Marble Floors Girl, not me. <laughs> it's so pure. Like I, I you know, you gotta respect that like they wanted yes. to see this hearing, they wanted their seats, they wanted to yes. get in. So like they made it happen. I love it. And if you look at the photo again, the person on the far left is named Maddie. She is an intern on the Hill alongside her friends who are also interns, and she spent weeks planning this. She got the guards to let them stay the night, let them order pizza. They listened to Harry Potter audiobooks, according to our friends at CNN, and they even watched Parks and Rec. As one does to pass the time. And I have to say, like, if this is what the youth are doing, mm -hmm. they're going to be okay. They're going to be gonna okay. They're going to be just fine. Yep, yeah. until the ice caps melt. Well, until then. Mm. Well, until then, let's take it to the timeline. <laughs> How are you keeping up with the Mueller Day uh, hearings? Sneaking it at the office? Hosting a watch party? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm All right, friends. Here is a tweet from Kyle Griffin. Here's the moment that will get played over and over. Nadler, did you actually totally exonerate the president? Mueller, no. Here's a tweet from CBS Evening News. Rep Zoe Lofgren, did your investigation find that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from one of the candidates winning? Mueller, yes, Lofgren. And which candidate would that be? Mueller, well, it would be Trump. And I actually think he said Trump accidentally. Trump, 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 same difference, all right. Joining us today is national security lawyer Bradley P. Moss. Good morning. Good morning, how you guys doing? Good. Doing well, thank you for joining us on this very exciting day. So Bradley, let's just jump right on in. Obstruction of justice is the hot topic today. Why is that? Well, because quite clearly, when you read the report, even just the highlights from the Mueller report, it is the obstruction angle that was truly posing the most criminal liability, the most risk to the president. As with everything in you know political scandals in this country's history, it's always the cover-up, not the crime itself, that causes the problem. It was Nixon covering up Watergate. It was Bill Clinton trying to cover up his affair. That was what got them into trouble, more so than the underlying conduct itself. And that's what we've seen here. The Trump campaign, maybe did not, as you know, this is what the report says, did not cross the line into criminal liability with respect to how it received assistance from the Russian government. But the president's actions as president of the United States after January 21, 2017, there were multiple instances of obstructive acts to shut down and interfere with or otherwise uh, obstruct the underlying investigation. And that is what the crux of this hearing is about today. Now, I want to just uh, note to everyone right now, Jim Jordan is speaking. Of course, if you watched the show yesterday, Paul McLeod was telling us that uh, he expected there to be fireworks uh, in that exchange between yes. Jordan and Mueller. Um, can you talk a little bit about just what some of your initial reactions are to the hearing so far? 
Sure. So I think both sides have gotten kind of what they want out of this. The Democrats already got, and you guys played some of it in the intro, they already got their uh, 30-second clips for the for the 2020 election. They got the parts of Mueller saying this was, one, it was not exoneration. They got a clip of uh, Mueller saying that he could not bring an indictment because of OLC policy, that the Justice Department cannot indict a sitting president. They got what they needed out of that, basically saying, if not for this OLC memo. If Donald Trump was anybody but the president, he would have been indicted. But Republicans got something out of this too. They got to, they got their you know, knives out. They were able to try to undermine and uh, de- denigrate the integrity of the investigation. They got to try to put Mueller back on his heels. It'll certainly play well with their base. It'll put, certainly play well with the Fox News audience. But in the end of the day, this is certainly going to be an additional push towards impeachment. When we come out of this uh, two sets of hearings today, it's hard to see any way in which we don't move forward on that angle. Mm. And Bradley, we just heard that they are taking a break, short five minutes. But from this first half of the hearing, have we learned anything new that we did not know already about Mueller's thoughts on obstruction? No, not really. And I don't think anybody really realistically believed we were going to. He wasn't going to engage in hypotheticals. He wasn't going to drop new bombshells. The point of this hearing wasn't to necessarily be a fact-finding inquiry because we had the report. The purpose for this hearing, as far as the Democratic majority was concerned, was to put a face and to put video to the words in that report. The American public does not have time, generally speaking, to read a 448-page report, but they will watch the two-hour hearing. They don't read the book. They will go see the movie. They'll watch the miniseries. And that's what Democrats were doing here with this hearing today. You mentioned uh, the Democrats. Can you talk a little bit more about um, some of the strategies that we're seeing uh, Democrats use to chip away uh, at information from Mueller that already hasn't been widely discussed? The Democrats are from the Republicans. The Democrats. So, yes. So what they were trying to outline were the specific contours of these various obstructive acts, whether it's trying to have uh, Mr. Mueller uh, fired in numerous times where uh, President Trump is calling Don McGahn or is calling uh, Rod Rosenstein, trying to get Mueller removed from the office. They're outlining the details of how he's trying to get McGahn to recant testimony to effectively suborn perjury. Uh, there's also the, uh, and they're, I'm sure they're going to get to this pretty soon when they come back from the break. There's this issue of the president trying to dangle pardons at people like Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, both of whom are now serving time in jail, to try to get them to stay quiet by dangling pardons at them. All of these are obstructive acts. They are certainly things that the Congress, in the context of impeachment, can consider. But it was not for the Justice Department to render determination for criminal liability because of the OLC memo. Mm. And, you know, you spoke about the Democrats, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Republicans. How are they handling these discussions on obstruction of justice in such a big audience? And do they appear nervous at all about what is being said? I want to say, say nervous. They know what the political risks are right now. And you, if you watched Louis Gohmert's uh, testimony or, or questions, you pretty much got the sense of where they're going with this. They view everything Donald Trump did as an understandable bit of frustration or reaction to what he believed to be a set of circumstances, an investigation into conduct that he did not believe was illegal. They view it as the investigation should have concluded early on. There was no quote unquote collusion. Therefore, when it continued on for months and months and months, the president got frustrated and lashed out. While that may not be the greatest way to react, it's not necessarily obstruction. That's where Louis Gohmert was going with his going with it. That's what Sean Hannity was saying last night on Fox. This is their idea. This is their claim that this is all a rigged witch hunt, is that there never should have been an inquiry beyond the initial termination. Of course, that's not how obstruction law works. 
Mm, a rigged witch hunt. Well, Bradley, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been incredibly insightful speaking with you. Yeah, absolutely, anytime. All right. Well, here's a tweet from Tom Namako. Mueller seems off balance by the hyperpartisan and intentionally confusing questions being thrown at him, and his unwillingness to spar at a bare minimum doesn't seem to be serving his work well. In advance of today's hearings, Molly Jongfast wrote about Trump's relationship with Attorney General Bill Barr for The Independent, and she joins us now. Hey, Molly. Hi. So thrilled that we can talk to you about this today. So let's just get right into it. How do you think Mueller is doing so far? You know, he seems uncomfortable. Like I keep I keep thinking he's just so uncomfortable, which is sort of a strange thing because Mueller's been so built up in the press as kind of the hero of 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 liberalism to see him so uncomfortable is kind of interesting. But you have to realize, like, he's a lifelong Republican who's being attacked by Republicans. So that has to be a pretty uncomfortable situation for him. Mm. And Molly, what are you specifically looking for in today's hearings? Anything that you have your eye on that you want to see? I mean, there are some unintentionally hilarious members of Congress (laughs) who I will enjoy. Louis Gohmert. I mean, he already he submitted an article into the record that he wrote, you know, which is very silly. And, you know, he's he has a whole conspiracy thing he's cooked up. Jim Jordan is another one. You know, they are going to try really hard to push these Fox News talking points that Sean Hannity outlined last night for them. So there is a very interesting propaganda loop that we're going to see. And we see them laying the groundworks. And even if you watch now, if you watch Twitter already, like the Trump war room has started tweeting out Louis Gomer and Jim Jordan. And the DNC war room is tweeting out Nadler. And so there's already, you know, this is like just the information that different parties are trying to find to prove their points. Yeah, you mentioned the propaganda loop. Can you talk a little bit more about it and, you know, what it uh, looks like and also, like, if there's anything that should kind of be a red flag as folks watch the next piece of, uh, of this hearing? Sure. Um, what's happening right now, which is really almost unprecedented in a weird way, is that the Trump has his own set of media that's very uh, committed to Trump's message, to supporting him and they have a bunch of different kind of weird stuff. They're the people who push this idea of a caravan at the border uh, before the midterms. And that's places like Fox News and One American News Network, who recently it was discovered had a connection to Russian propaganda. Uh, there's That's the Daily Caller, all the sort of Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity type stuff. And those outlets are committed to propaganda. They're committed to bolstering the president. And last night, John Hannity went on television and told Republicans what they should ask the president. And even before that, and I think this is really interesting, before that, Trump tweeted out, watch Sean Hannity tonight, which made me think, and you know, Sean Hannity and President Trump talk on the phone, they're friends. You'll remember Sean Hannity was also a client of the president's lawyer who's now in jail, Michael Cohen. So this is like a whole weird briar patch filled with conflicts of interest and a commitment towards exonerating the president no matter what the uh, information says. Mm. And Molly, you've outlined a very complicated, dare I say, propaganda-like-esque media environment. Uh, What should everyday Americans be looking out for today as they watch not only the Mueller hearing, but also the news coverage around it? I mean, you 
always want to try as much as possible to differentiate what's opinion writing, and I write opinion writing, and what's journalism. And the are outlets that are more journalistic are going to be places that are not Fox News. <laughs> I mean, you know, there'll be there may be a bias on other sides. You know, there might be a slight bias, but Fox News really has. And if you and if you read about the origins of it with Rupert Murdoch, they really have always been committed to a Republican bias. So that you have to be really careful of. I also would say that it's extremely important to just look at the report. A lot of people didn't read the report. Most people didn't read the report. It's really long. It's quite boring. But there are things in there that are pretty explosive. And when uh, congressional members are reading the report, that you know that's true. Like that's the stuff where it's been vetted. You know it's true. So. I would say stick to things that have been written by Mueller and his team and not things that have been written by Louis Gohmert. Mm. Fair enough. I do want to ask you about something that you tweeted, which is you said, I just want to know why Mueller neglected to interview the president's large son. <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I can't understand, you know, adult sons. Uh, Don Jr. was at that meeting in Trump Tower with Natasha Veshlaskaya and nobody ever followed up with that. I mean, this is a meeting that was supposedly about adoptions, but was really about information. And nobody ever like interviewed him about that. And if you think about if like Chelsea Clinton went and met with a foreign government, a hostile foreign government that ended up hacking our election, like it's just so insane to me that he gets away with it. And the um, people had said that the, the answer was he was too dumb to collude. And that seems not like a good answer to make. Ooh, too dumb to collude. What a statement people are making. Well, speaking of other people under this collusion microscope, we mentioned your story in The Independent earlier on in the show. And for folks who may not remember or know who this person is, can you explain again, who is Roy Cohn and why is he connected to Donald Trump? So Roy Cohn is really interesting. And he's interesting to me because he worked with McCarthy in the House on Un-American Activities, which put, uh, put, a lot of writers and artists in jail, including my grandfather, for their associations with communism, real or imagined. But it was sort of a, it was kind of a way to get the country behind this anti-communist threat. Uh, so Roy Cohen has this famous and strange history as being a really bad guy. And he was a lawyer for the mafia, and he was really sketchy, and he appears in the incredible play Angels in America. And Roy Cohen ends up going to uh, ends up going to become best friends with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump always felt, and this is like in the 70s, that Roy Cohen had his back and would protect him. So when Jeff Sessions recused himself as AG from the Russia investigation, which again, we talk, they talked about that a little bit in the hearing. Trump was very furious that Roy Cohen had Roy Cohen, that Jeff Sessions, Jeff Sessions had recused himself. And he kept saying, where is my Roy Cohen? Where is my Roy Cohen? And so when he, when he fired, finally managed to fire Jeff Sessions, he hired Bill Barr, who is now the new AG. And Bill Barr really has become Trump's Roy Cohen in an incredible way. He has just done everything Trump has wanted and so much more. And if you see the way the Mueller, test, the Mueller report was released, he went and had a press conference before he wrote a letter that said, it, you know, he did a lot of really partisan things and he's really behaved. And there are a bunch of interesting pieces written by a lot of smart lawyers about how Bill Barr really beha has beha behaved like the president's lawyer and not 
like the country's attorney general. All right. Well, Molly, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Ooh. And uh, as of now, uh, the hearing is still on a break. Yes. But, you know, we will definitely keep you posted. Yes. And while they may be in a break and we are taking a break from all things Mueller, don't worry. We'll keep you posted if anything breaks. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets with David Spade. Stay tuned. It's time for Fire Tweets, and today I'm joined by actor and comedy legend David Spade, who's going to help me out with some Fire Tweets. And he just popped up. That's why I was laughing, y'all. Sorry, I was snoozing. (laughs) Took a little nappy. Took a nap. Well, you've had a long week. It was your birthday. Oh, I don't like to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it? I only found out because John Mayer talked about it. Oh, yeah, no. Why doesn't John Mayer talk about my birthday? He he blew me up. Yeah, I like that because I see him. I don't see him that much in California, but... We're more uh, DM buddies. A DM. Oh, yeah. he slides into your DMs. Whoop. There we go. Breaking news. David and John, the no, couple he is, of the season. He's good. <laughs> he's, he's like a comedy guy, so he likes comedians. He's so. great. And you are a comedian's comedian, so it's good that he's following mm. along. Boop, boop, boop. Take it. Well, we're going to do some comedy today, which is called Fire Tree. Enough Mueller report. <laughs> no more Mueller. I well. mean, <laughs> I like BuzzFeed. It's like crazy Mueller. It's yeah. like the only one that's not super serious. Yeah, we're just like laughing. And it's going like Mueller it. with a bunny ears. Yes, Mueller. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right, so for Fire Tweets, I'm going to hit a button, and I'm going to read a tweet, and then you're going to hit a button, and we'll read a tweet, and we'll have a little joke about it, and have a fun time. Okay. Sound good? I feel like I might need to be walk through that because I'm not Okay, I'm going to show you first up. So here we go. Aparna, you tweeted. Always a quandary when you (laughs) walk through the same pace with a stranger down an entire city block and then have to consider, are we dating now? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. Do you experience this in New York? That is how I date people. Is that you're like walking next to them? I just walk fast next to a girl and after about six steps I go, it's time for third base. Hopefully uh, consent is involved in that one. Yes. Third base <laughs> is shaking hands. I mean, really? Is it shaking hands? Yeah, come on. Oh, crap. wow. Did not Don't know. Be that. weird. All right. So it's your turn. You're going to hit the button and read the truth. I got this. You got it? There you go. Okay, I read this? Yes. Okay, when you, when you realize, I'll, have, I'll be great on my own show. When you realize you accidentally posted the pick as a story instead of DMing and delete it just in time. Do you get that? Oh, I'm trying to follow. So it's obviously something that's just for one person. Exactly. So you're a big Insta story person. I see a lot of them. But it's when you accidentally post on Insta story what you meant to DM, you know, John Mayer. No, I'll tell you something more sickening. What? I was out with my buddies golfing, and I'd never seen live Instagram. So I saw one on my phone. I go, well, that's weird. It was new, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like this. And... My phone keeps ringing, and finally I go, what? And they go, you're on live. I put it on live, and then I'm talking so much S-H-I-T. I go, You can say shit. You're okay. talking shit. I go, and then I was like, they're hearing everything. And then I had to rack my brain, because then I didn't know how to turn it off. Oh, my God. Sickening. That's, that's Sick. frightening. That is now my new nightmare. Would I'm always afraid me. I'm going to post a nude on Instagram, but to then talk shit and have it live streamed? No. Oh. Career ruining sometimes. All right, Ilan, you tweeted. <laughs> I want to be 14 again and ruin my life differently. I have new ideas. That's funny. Do you? What would you go back and do worse than before? As First of all, I'm going to hire them to write on my show because it's funny. <laughs> and what would I go back 14? I was stressed about everything. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it was too much. I did. 
what I did is I, I was studying too hard in grade school. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got to high school, I decided to try to be, have a social life. I should have flipped it because it oh, didn't help me get into college. Grader? They go, they don't count that you were smart first through eighth grade. <laughs> they started taking notice in high school, and that's when my grades went, you uh, so should have done all the weed and drinking. Seventh grade. Exactly. Ninth grade, buttoned it up. My high school was like, euphoria. <laughs> I love that show. New show. It's great. All right, so tweet of the day, we do it at the same time, and then you're going to read the prompter. Okay, you ready? Good? One, two, three. I read it? Yep, all you. All, oh, this one comes from me. Yes. All kidding aside, rules for earthquakes. Stop, drop, then Instagram yourself and be super dramatic about it. Sit back and count the likes. Because <laughs> we had an earthquake. In Los Angeles. How, are you feeling more scared? You know, I live between LA and New York, so I travel back and forth, and oh. I have not been back since the earthquakes happened, and I'm frightened because I'm there next week. I'm Believe me, I live on the hill in a mansion. Yes, I don't Other live in a mansion words, there. I yeah, don't. I don't live in a mansion. And uh, <laughs> 55 rooms, 18 windows, whatever you call it, apartment. <laughs> and um, I am so scared, those little sticks that hold up are like, mm -hmm. They're gonna get Because when you, when you get this number, I was an hour down in Newport, and I felt it, and I go, oh, if that's, if that's I feel here, I wonder what it's like back there. Ooh, it was terrifying. It was tough in the epicenter, yeah. it was tough. But everyone was very dramatic, they're like, I survived, literally their coffee cup is like that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we have a spillage here. Oh my God. We actually have liquid in our cups. They just figured out it's vodka and coffee. <laughs> All right, so David, you have a new show, it's called Lights Out with David Spade. What made you want to do this show? Oh, Vinny with a mop. <laughs> I'll four. Uh, well, I just wanted to do a show about uh, uh, with some comedians and just make fun of stuff and sort of a panel show. And then maybe we'll do a little bit or a little field piece, me being funny out in the world or whatever. I just thought this will be a good play. I'll do it in Los Angeles, make fun of Hollywood a little bit, make fun of uh, maybe sports, whatever, whatever, current events. Gotcha. And who can we expect to be making fun of the world with you? Oh, wow. It's going to be rotating comedians every night. Okay. But like that first week, I think, is Theo Vaughn, Dana Carvey, Whitney Cummings, Neil Brennan. Oh, just friends of mine that come on. And then Kevin Neal. Oh, by the way, it'll be like SNL jury duty. Okay. Uh, I'll get those guys. <laughs> SNL jury sure. duty. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it'll be great. Two people already fell and died. Yes, I, we have a this. huge spill We'll here. do it on the break. We'll fix it. So speaking of SNL and other late night shows, they all seem to be focused on politics these days. But yeah. your show is veering away from that. What made you want to make that decision? Well... There's a lot of people doing it well right now, and it gets me worked up too much when people talk about it, or I talk about it, or you read about it. I sort of want to take a breather from it. And well, I don't really do it in my act, yeah. and so it's gonna be hard. You know, things are coming up, uh, you know, debates, elections, and I mean, if we can think of a funny angle on it, we'll do it, but it's never gonna be like, I hate this person, or I mm -hmm. hate that person. Because, you know, some, it used to be fun, Johnny Carson would joke about both sides, and it was just light, but in the last, you know, Five years, it's gotten very tough, very dark, and very angry. So i just rather, for a comedy show, just skip the whole thing if I can. Mm, and dark and angry is especially the theme today in D.C. with the Mueller testimony. Do you have any thoughts about that uh, fun event happening down there? <laughs> I don't even really follow it. No, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I did see it on your TV, and I knew it was happening today. But there's so many lawyers involved and so many people and fingers pointing. Then I'm like, is that the guy that's like, who mad is this white politician? Who works for them? Or, 
So I just sort of tap out. Gotcha. Tap yeah. out is good. And you tap out a lot by watching The Bachelorette, I've noticed. Ooh. You're a huge fan. Ding, 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 ding. Um, and you've done a ton of Instagram stories about the show. What do you love so much about that reality TV program? I just think it's fun and brainless. <laughs> sort of like my show. It's just to watch it and then you laugh and I make fun of it when I'm home. I do stories about it, uh, Instagram stories. And, and uh, I usually get a little couple knocks in me and then rolling. That's great. And Few then we'll teenies. see. And then later the next day I go, oof. <laughs> you take them down. Yeah, I go a little rough, yeah. <laughs> but it makes me laugh because I, I have no animosity. It's just funny to yeah. me. You know, they're on the show. They're fair game. And and then, uh, but I, they're always cute girls on there. The guys are always still, it's just funny to watch. Yeah, it's a good time. And as you said, it's a break from reality. Yeah. So it's nice to de- It's a reality press. show, but it's not really reality. Uh, it's all produced. And I, I might go on it one day. If I would go, I would only go on it if they let me come in right at the fantasy suite. <laughs> <laughs> hey, boom, 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 and I'll give you your ratings in a minute. You're like, oh, that's all I want, fantasy. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today and spilling water all over the set. You were the first person I know hey, to have done that. it was a great that. time. Flip it. All right. Well, Lights Out with David Spade premieres next Monday, July 29th on Comedy Central. More AM to DM is up next. Look at that, dude. Slide in your PMs, 1130. <laughs>Way. And I want to bring up this tweet from James Ball, who said, The Mueller hearing summarized. Five minutes. Someone reads out bits of Mueller's report as he occasionally mumbles, that's correct. Followed by five minutes, angry monologues about pretty much anything else. <laughs> Repeat for six hours. Oh, Here we God. are. It is. Here we It's a ride, but it, I guess you know what's happening next. It's just like a, this little boop, 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 boop. Yep, yep. And it was great like to... Great to have uh, our guests uh, earlier who have really distinct areas of expertise yes. on this uh, and, you know, points of view to yes. help unpack it and, and break it down. And I love so. Molly's own personal history with Mr. Roy. Did not know that. So That's Molly, right. thank you for sharing that. That's today. right. Family well, uh, we are going to get into some other topics. This, of course, is from A to Z. And here's a tweet from Taylor Nicole Dean. Forever 21 is sending diet bars with clothes you order, and that's so insensitive. Holy crap, like, how about we don't make someone negatively reflect on their body image when trying to just order some new outfits? Woo, and Mermaid Queens tweeted, a reminder about impact versus intention re- Forever 21 situation. Their intention was to send these bars out because they got samples. The impact is still fat phobic and harmful. And for them to have an oversight still makes them responsible because it was their action that caused harm. Ooh, this is, I was struggling reading that because I'm struggling understanding why this was even a decision at Forever 21 HQ. Well, uh, can I tell you a little story about oh, how I walked do. into my very own kitchen last night and there oh, was no. a an Atkins bar in one of these packs because my wife had ordered some menswear from Forever 21 and one of these Atkins sample bars arrived with her stuff and she was like, what is it? Like, why is there an Atkins bar in my order? And like initially what happened was people started wondering on Twitter um, why, particularly with plus size clothing, why they were getting these Atkins bar samples mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I think what is implicit when you receive a, a diet <clears throat> bar is a message that you should lose weight or that you're not good enough. So the implications with uh, plus-size clothing are, you know, especially dire, um, but across the board, bad. Like, yeah. no matter no matter how you square this thing, 
you get that diet bar, yeah. it, it's just a message that whatever size you are, it's not, it's not good the enough. right size. It's not, it's good not right. Because, you know, Atkins, as a person that was on Atkins most of their life, not most of their life, but I spent a lot of years, yeah. my teens, with uh, doing Atkins, I battled with my own eating stuff. And, you know, that bar is not an RX bar or a Cliff bar. All these bars you eat because you're like, oh, I forgot my lunch. This it is, is not a, an energy bar. It's not an energy bar. This bar is meant to be low carb, low sugar, and make it lose weight really quick. So that's what's so concerning to me is who thought, mm, you know, that person may have ordered a medium, but we should push them to be a small. And you know, what's even more disgusting about that is that this only shows you that capitalism is in motion. If the idea was to get you to go on a diet while trying on clothing, just even like, you know, in the abstract, that was maybe something that people did, you're only telling me that I'm here to buy more products from you forever and ever, and this is not an investment. You know what? I don't want to shop somewhere that won't let me invest in them that way. All right. So. Well, let me tell you uh, what Forever 21 was tell thinking, me. because we're wondering what they were thinking. Yes. So Forever 21 uh, gave a statement to Jezebel about this, um, and they first said that these were in all of the packages uh, that came from e-commerce. So uh, they said it wasn't just uh, plus-size clothing, which— um, you know, as I said, my wife ordered menswear and she received it. Um, and they said this was an oversight on our part and we sincerely apologize for any offense. This may have cost our customers as this was not our intention in any way. And again, it just speaks to the thoughtlessness of this. They said this was a, a sample that they got and they send out these free test packages. But mm. like, take a minute, think about it. Yes, especially and with Atkins. There you go. Yes. Wouldn't, have, wouldn't have happened. So let's take it to the timeline. What do you think of this Forever 21 situation? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2DAM. Ooh, well, you know, complicated. Complicated. Garbage. To say the least. All right. Well, up next, Sizzle G and I talk, Ru talk with RuPaul's Drag Race star and musician Aja. And later, Alex is sitting with me and talking a lot more about this Mueller stuff. That's right. That is exactly <laughs> where I'll be. I was going to trick you there. <laughs> Welcome back, you guys. I'm Boris Johnson's wig stylist, Syzygy, and I am so excited to be joined by hip-hop artist and RuPaul's Drag Race alum, Aja! Hey, girl! Hi. <laughs> How are you? Good, how are you? I'm alive. I'm thriving on four shots of espresso. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, same, but thankfully we have our new motivation. Zach is joining us, too. Oh, I, I, now I am here. You yeah. know, these two have just been in love this whole time, and I'm just invisible. I'm Thank kidding. <laughs> I wish you could see the shoes. Oh. Oh my, can we do a shoe? This I shoe. can't, can I can't lift my leg. Oh. Shoe game. Like, this part. Wait, okay, I'll pick, I'll hold up your leg. Okay, there yeah. we go. Let's do that. A little shoe. Hi, oh. these shoes right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Well, let's, let's talk about things other than shoes, like your new EP, all caps. Yes. Uh, it is out now and Billboard has described it as, the lyrics as more forceful and thoughtful than that they've seen ever before. What was your process in creating this, this new music? You know, uh, when I did my first album, uh, Box Office, I really was just channeling like kind of more of like a fantasy range of like ideas and thoughts in my head. And when I did all caps, everyone kept telling me, put your emotions into the music. And me like, emotions, what's that? What are you talking about? And then, you know, it just kind of happened. Like any art form, you end up putting your emotions into it. And, you know, I was a, I was a little angry. I was a little mad. And like, I think that uh, doing this project, I learned there's not nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, it's okay to channel that anger into something uh, because I'd rather put it into my art than <laughs> use it against myself, <laughs> which is what a lot of people will do if they don't channel it. Yeah, for sure. It's true. And like, speaking of anger, like, we got to talk about the Drag Race fan community. Mm -hmm. So we know that they're always going to feel some type of way about something. But how do you feel the response has been from the Drag Race community in a post-drag world? 
Well, uh, actually, a lot of my EP was uh, reflective of my experiences through all of those things. And, like, you know, I try to now not pay attention to that type of thing because for me, like, whether it's Drag Race fandom or just world fandom, music fandom, whatever fandom, I'm just happy and excited to have, like, people who support me and support my music and, uh, you know, are dealing with my bullshit. So, like, <laughs> to me, <laughs> that's important. And it, I, I really just want to focus on that part. But, you know, sometimes there is going to be, like, hate here and there, but that's kind of a part of, of being an artist, especially, like, an opinionated brown artist is, like, you know, it's either you're going to be loved or hated. And I've kind of just come to terms with that and just said, you know what, I'm making my art. And if it never breaks through, if it never becomes something huge, I'm okay because I'm expressing myself. And I just want to spread that message that as long as you're doing you, that's all that matters. Mm. And you know, something I've noticed in your career is that you're incredibly connected to your fans. And I would say the love and hate ratio between you is way more love than hate. So as someone that talks to their fans constantly, what is the most meaningful interaction you've had with them? I think every every interaction with my fans is meaningful. Like all my supporters are uh, different. They come from different walks of life all over the world. And like I have supporters who have my phone number, who have been to my house, who like who know me like deeper than just like a TV screen or even just through the music. Like there's a lot of my supporters who know who like the real Aja is, and like that's a connection that you can only make with someone who's really invested in getting to know you as a person. Honestly, growing up, I didn't really have friends at all. I think it's very clear <laughs> because <laughs> I've always just been like a weirdo and like uh, having fans and supporters is very weird to me because I'm like, why are these people like, why do they like me? Like, why are they interested in me? So when I connect with them, I feel like I'm making friends and I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, I want to be an example to those people who maybe Feel, felt the same way that I did when I was growing up. So I want to be a friend to someone else too. Mm. Well, I think we could talk a little bit about that glow up of like not having those friends to suddenly being Starbucks brand ambassador, H&M partnership for their first ever Pride campaign. What was, what was that feeling like? And also, do you think that we're still seeing outside of Pride Month, we're still seeing that same like, like uh, connection between uh, those companies and the queer community? I think sometimes. I think like uh, like the campaign I did for Starbucks, uh, it was like nothing pride affiliated. They weren't really like trying to like queer bait me or anything. Like they just said, wait, we, we know you like s'mores because you complained about it not being around <laughs> on Twitter. And, uh, you know, they, they called me in and they took excellent care of me. Of me. They asked me my pronouns. They asked me how I wanted to show up. They said, you don't have to be in or out of drag or costume or makeup. We, we just want you to be comfortable. Uh, but there are times where, you know, you have these corporate uh, businesses who want to flaunt pride for the pride season. And then, like, after it's done, they're like, well, bye. Like, you know, that's all. I mean, I don't have a problem with that because it's support unless, like, they're the corporates who uh, are openly donating money to anti-queer, like, uh, politicians mm. and, like, movements. Because that's when it's just like, okay, you're a hypocrite and you're just, like, pink washing. You want pink dollars. Mm. And to me, that's a big thing. Yeah. Uh, people use pink dollars all around the world to cover up like shit storms and like really terrible things. Yeah. So like, I don't want to be part of that. Yeah, and you do such a great job of bringing to light those issues and also just talking about your own identity in public, you know, demanding that folks like you are, be, are seen and heard and respected. What has that process been like to do that so open with everyone involved? Honestly, like, it's something that, uh, that I try to really convey on my EP, especially when I uh, wrote Erasure, like, 
you know, a, a lot of my life, I feel like I let other people dictate my identity and like I got so affected by what everyone had to say about me. You're not this enough, you're not that enough and you're, you're not blah, blah, you know what? I'm me and like I'm excited to be me. I, every day I find something new out about myself and I'm excited to just show that to the world. I feel like I live in New York City. I am so privileged to be able to be a queer person in America. There, you know, there's people like in the Middle East who are being thrown off of buildings for being queer. There's countries where, like in Africa, where you can't even like show any indication because like it, it's literally legal to like kill you. Like to me, that's insane. So like being a New Yorker, I'm gonna just like be myself. And you know, if that bothers people, well, oh well. Yeah. You know, if I don't take a lead as someone who has the privilege to pride, to be myself, then some people around the world may never, ever find that in themselves. Mm. You know, we, we all have that strength, and some places are safer than others. But if it's safe where you are, as long as you're being yourself, yeah. that's all that matters. Yeah, and mm. in, in an interview recently I read, I think, on Them.Us, you talked about telling your family that you go by Aja now. What was it like talking with them and having that conversation about your identity and being respectful in the pronouns and names they use? Well, truthfully, I don't really have like a big family. I have like my mom. Okay. And uh, you know, my mom, my mom is like so funny because she's like in her 60s and she's just like, okay, whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> she's like, my mom is so easy. She's just like, I guess. Um, but everybody has been pretty cool about it. Like people have been like, okay, especially like in my uh, uh, my like religious house, which is like, you know, we have like a pretty big queer community in there too. And like they were just, they're all always like, so what's your mm-hmm. what's your identity? What's your your pronoun? What's this? And like you know, they would always ask me even from the jump, like, so is it Aja or or Jay? And I would be like, well, you can call me whatever you want. But essentially, I really wanted to change my name because I felt like there was no disconnect between this Aja that people kind of tried to like make a different person and me as a person. So I was like, you know, I am Aja. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also felt like people tried to use it against me a lot and be like, well, when you did your music, you should have released it under your birth name. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just don't think that that's right to tell people. Yeah. Like, I feel like as an artist, I, I am entitled to my own identity. Exactly. Well, in terms of identity, how do you think that's going to be playing in for your future music? Honestly, I, I it sounds weird, but I don't really like use tie my identity too much into my music. I kind of just make the music, and what you see is what you see, and what you hear is what you hear. Mm. I, I actually kind of have like this weird. Um, I was talking to my publicist about this. Actually, I have this weird kind of like Sia Lakele complex mm-hmm. where I kind of don't like to. F- to show my visuals sometimes because I don't want people to be so focused on who I am and what I'm wearing because it's already such a big controversy. Like, drag or not drag, what is this? Like, male, female, non-conforming. Like, for me, it's just like, I just want to make music. Like, I'm not concerned about how I look. Like, you know, I just feel like we're kind of accustomed to, especially in the queer community and in the world, to fit this, like, weird beauty standard and this look. And to me, not everything is about looks. Sometimes it's just about expression. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Amen to that. Woo. Well, I mean, yeah, Asha's over here preaching, y'all. <laughs> I'm sitting back just being taken to church. I was like, yes, Asha. Yes. yes. Tell me the gospel. <laughs> I, get to, I get to tell people I get so political sometimes. I'm like, draw back, draw back, draw back. No, let it out. Let it out. This is the space for that. <laughs> oh, definitely. And I'm excited to see the music in the future. Um, so thank you, Asha, for joining us today. Thank you for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. So All Caps is out now. But don't go away, because more AM to DM is up next.
Here's a tweet from Tanisha C. Ford. I realized that there weren't that many books on fashion written from black women, black girls' perspectives. I wanted to write a history that, are, that centered our experiences, getting dressed, how we style, and why we style. Here to talk to me about that book is Tanisha C. Ford, professor and author of Dressed in Dreams, A Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion. Hi. Hello. It's so great to have you, and you just came back uh, from home. I did. Your home home, because you live My in New home, York. home home. I, I live in Harlem, but I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I just got back from there. Well, thank Thank you for, you know, getting off a jet and spending some time with me today. It's my pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you about this memoir, which is through the lens of clothing. Why did you want to take that approach in writing this book? Well, I thought, what's more relatable than talking about how we get dressed every day and why mm. we make certain choices about our clothes? So I thought if I started from there to tell this story about race and gender and sexuality and politics and class, that it'd be something that was universal, that even if people couldn't relate to all of my personal experiences, they could find some similarities, mm. you know, in that, that act of getting dressed every day. Yeah, and you know, you write from a black woman's perspective and you talk about black culture and black fashion, and I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, Dapper Dan is an example of a black fashion icon who just does not get the respect that I think he deserves. Why do you think people still aren't celebrating black folks like us in the fashion world? Well, there's a way that this whole industry, which of course is an extension of the whole capitalist system, yes. is really centered on whiteness. And a lot of white voices are at the table in terms of designers, but then also the fashion executives, a lot of the journalists. And we're only just starting to see those things change. And so what I love about Dapper Dan, why he's such a pioneer to me, is that he said, forget all of that. <laughs> I understand what my people want. Mm -hmm. I understand how we want to look, what yes. matters to us, what our taste culture looks like. And he designed for that. And so I'm glad to see that how social media pushed Gucci to say, hey, wait a minute. Sure did. We know the legacy and the genealogy of those clothes. That's Dapper Dan. Mm. And I just read his memoir as well. And I think that our, our books and conversation make a great pair. It, it really does. And if folks aren't familiar with Dapper Dan, definitely go Google Wikipedia. He is iconic on every level. Uh, so as I mentioned before, you just got back from Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'd love to get your thoughts on how black style is expressed in the Midwest. Because, you know, I'm also an ex-black uh, Midwest. Western gal, and people forget that we do exist there and we are like really challenging norms out there. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what that looks like. Well, it was so important for me to write this story from the Midwestern perspective because so often fashion stories center on you know, the LA coast mm -hmm. or New York City, maybe Miami or Atlanta. But I'm like, hey, we girls in the Midwest care about how we dress too. And so for me, I like to think about uh, growing up, how we were really invested in the matchy-matchy look. So you may have two colors and everything <laughs> would match yes. those two colors, you know? <laughs> and, and so that was one of the things I definitely think is, you know, makes me think of my childhood. But another thing that I think is overlooked is how much our Rust Belt factory style has become a part of hip-hop fashion, but also mainstream fashion. So think about the popularity of Timberland boots, mm -hmm. Carhartt jackets, Dickies. Yeah. Those were the kind of things that we were wearing in large part because we saw our parents who worked in factories wear those garments. Yes, and I have to point out, I am wearing a jumpsuit yes. that was not made by a person in a factory. This is something that a friend of mine in Chicago who makes jumpsuits is a queer fashion designer, she made, but it was the exact same thing. She saw that happening in her town in rural Midwest and she decided to channel that in her own fashions. So I must know, because you brought up uh, your childhood, you know, the 80s and 90s come in and out all the time. Yeah. 
What trends from that time are you really still excited about? Okay, so I was telling somebody this the other day. <laughs> you are ready. <laughs> oh, yes. I've been thinking about this. I want those jeans that had the leather patches down the front that we used to wear. Oh, my those God. Those were everything. <laughs> L-E-I, machine. Yes. I want those to come back yes. like in a major way. I need some jeans with colored leather down the front. I love it. We used to do unimaginable things with denim. Like, I think about <laughs> baby true. fat and That's what true. they would do or apple bottoms. Like, denim was the place mm-hmm. where it was, I think, black people's can this for many years. Mm, So is there something you regret from back then, a style that you wish you would have never explored? Well, I think people would expect me to say that the style I regret is my Wave Nouveau, which is a cousin (laughs) to the Jerry Curl. (laughs) If anybody can remember the drip droppy, messy, stain the collar of your Uh, shirt, stain your couch. It does not sweat. (laughs) But I wanted that hairstyle because it reminded me of my aunt who moved from Fort Wayne to Los Angeles. And when I went to visit her, she was living in Baldwin Hills and she had this amazing life that involved a black Mercedes Benz. And I wanted all of that. And I thought that the hair would be my way to to get that thing, oh. to get that lifestyle. Well, in your book, you also write about going shopping for a designer handbag yes. uh, and where you are worried that you're going to be profiled. And, you yeah. know, Oprah Winfrey herself has been profiled for shopping while while black. So do you think it's worth, um, I guess my bigger question here is, you know, we hear these stories so much and it's always about us as black people being rejected from these spaces and us needing to prove that we have enough capital to go to, right. go to those places. But do you think we should do the reverse and just stop going to those places and build our own? Well, I think that we should have the space to make whatever choice we want to make. I don't think it necessarily has to be a collective choice. And that's why when I finished the book with that chapter and that story, I wanted to express the range of emotions I felt in that moment. Part of me felt like, oh, I know that this is a problem. The feminist in me was like, you know, this is a capitalist system. It's wrong. You know, (laughs) the black the black militant in me was like, you know, they police us in these spaces. Why do we even need to go there? But part of me felt like I've arrived because I can shop here. And so I think that it was important for me to show that black people feel a whole range of experiences Mm. as it relates to luxury goods and our place in the luxury market. Mm, I love that advice. It also makes me feel less guilty going into Gucci (laughs) now. Well, we've covered the 80s and the 90s, but the 2000s are what are really hot right now. As an expert, what do you think about thin eyebrows coming back and should it be allowed? (laughs) So my mother is of the thin eyebrows generation, and so I grew up seeing her with those pencil-thin eyebrows. I've now encouraged her to fill them in just a little bit, you know, a little, maybe a little back eyebrow. (laughs) A little little shadowing, something. A little bit. But but what I love to see is how people are creating a sense of originality. Mm -hmm. They can make themselves stand out just by doing something like changing the shape of an eyebrow. To me, that, that expresses the range of style and style possibilities to really make us feel like we're walking in our own in these very unique ways. Uh, I love that. You're, you were over just inspiring me to like really <laughs> change things up after I leave here because I just wore a boring jumpsuit today. But tomorrow I'm going to come in with a thin brow pushed all the way back. I'm here for it. Denisha's going to help me with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and talking My about your pleasure. book with me. It's a really fantastic book and congratulations on everything. Thank you. Um, and if you're recovering from Wave Nouveau addiction, be sure to pick up a copy of Dressed in Dreams available wherever books are sold. And up next, it's your tweets. So stay tuned. Welcome back. And we, of course, started off today's show talking about the implications around obstruction of justice and how that would play out at the Mueller hearing. And I want to bring up this tweet from Natasha Bertrand, uh, who just said, noteworthy, Mueller says yes when asked whether Trump could be charged with obstruction of justice after he leaves office. So little news update there for you. Of course, we'll be reflecting on the hearings tomorrow on the show. 
so tweet us any questions you have about what happened today, and we'll help to yeah. hope to give you some clarity. For sure, and we can't stress that enough. Tweet us things you want to know, yeah. and we will ask them to the folks yeah. that we're talking to. We yeah. would love your support in digging down to what the tea is as all time at all times. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, here's a tweet from Bill who uh, sent this to us after today's Mueller hearings. I think Mueller was a pawn about this entire thing. He appears lost and confused about a lot of these questions. Yeah, one of the things that uh, we talked about earlier with uh, Molly, we read that tweet from Tom Namico, yeah. um, is just that, uh, you know, he's in his 70s, he's a lawyer, people were noting that he was being cautious, and that maybe this whole five-minute back-and-forth wasn't a format that suited him the best. Yes, it wasn't so, that. I don't think that, I personally don't think it's great for him, but also it was surprising to me to see him so, he looked nervous. And, you know, this is a world event today, and he knew it was coming, so maybe the pressure was getting to him. But, mm. you know, he is a lawyer, not a TV personality. Mm. Mm. Well, Cini Martinez tweeted this following Zach and Syzygy's conversation with Aja. Weirdos who grow up with no friends equal premium adults winning for the rest of life work. Ooh, and I have ooh. to say, like, this does seem to be yeah, true. a trend. Yeah. It's kind of like how David Spade even said he wishes he would have done things differently as a kid, like uh, messed up more in middle school yeah. or worked harder in high school. Take this philosophy. Be weird, young, and it's going to make you even a better person because weird becomes cool it's as an adult. And I always feel like all of the weirdos in school who had cultivated their own interests, who were really obsessive around certain pop culture things, yes. who probably would have been called nerds, they all turn out to be like delightful, amazing adults. Yeah, so. they're, they're called journalists. Yep. They're called, they're <laughs> <laughs> Literally, journalists are like the geekiest There you go. <laughs> then go on TV and talk about it. So. There you go. Wait a second, wait a second. If we're going to talk about weird people, can we just all acknowledge that I uh. look super popular? <laughs> can we just say that right now? Can we now? talk about this waist, though, honey? Can we talk about this waist? Lose the L3. Get, get it out of here. Can we get this waist? Can we talk about this waist? Can we also she talk about the fact together. I was not on set for Tanisha Seaford. Yes. How dare you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How dare you? I, you already stole the show one time. I had Thank to get you. my own space back. You know, fighting Thank for you. space. Here. Reclaim yeah. your space. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Well, we're going to reclaim our space now, and you can go on with your day. But first, thank you to our guests, Syzygy, Bradley P. Moss, Molly Jong-Fast, Tanisha Seaford, Aja, and David Spade. We'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.